Cool. Yep. Okay. Well, if you're ready, I'm ready. I'm going to add, yep. add a marker. Boom. And okay. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and contents expressed disturbing and objectionable. Hello, everybody. Once again, this is Todd Fredericks, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And it is Memorial Day 2019, and I have the distinct pleasure of talking to someone who has taken their time out after an ER shift on a holiday to talk to me about a topic I've been very interested in, and that is, you'll go, we'll get into that. Uh, and so I want to introduce uh, uh, Jason McMullen. He's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at University of Cincinnati. He works at multiple hospitals in the Cincinnati area. He is also a pre-hospital fellowship trained physician uh, and a relatively new uh, field of pre-hospital medicine. It's not new specifically, but formal training and, ho- and fellowships is relatively new. Um, and I think he, he's going to give us a great insight about what that is about and what it adds in terms of the scope and abilities of a physician to practice. And so today it's just me. I don't have a spots. I don't have a medical student. They've all they've all punched out or they're studying for boards. And so I'm looking forward to just a, a time to spend with uh, Jason talking. And so with that, I won't delay any more. Uh, Dr. McMullen, thank you for joining us on Rotations today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we always start, anytime we interview anybody that's of note, and you are of note, His, by the way, for those listening, his CV is just, it's pages and pages and pages. A very accomplished individual. I mean, uh, Jason, how many publications are we up to now? Oh, I don't know. Enough. I, I, yeah, I'm looking at, I'm just I'm just <laughs> swagging it right now, but I'm thinking there's probably at least 70 to 100 uh, various publications, and, and they're all over, ER journals, Journal of Emergency Medicine. So if you can look up Jason McMullen, uh, M-U-L-L-A-N on the McMullen part, so that helps your spelling, and you can see his articles. Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? What, what got you to where you are now? I tell you, a lot of uh, just uh, being stubborn and uh, kind of trusting a process. You know, I there was something when I was young that, made medicine call to me, which is fortunate. I was in college. I was walking to, to dinner with a friend my freshman year, and I hear something from his belt go, and then a whole bunch of unintelligible sounds. And he looks at me and says, hey, you want to go see a car wreck? What I didn't know is that he was on a volunteer rescue squad as an EMT. So he jumped in his little Toyota 4Runner with a little bubble light on top, rode out into the country where some guy had wrecked his van sat there and watched them, you know, cut up the car with the jaws of life. Helicopter lands in the field beside him, and off he goes about 30 minutes after he got there. And I'm just sitting there going, holy cow, what happened? And my friend is just like, yeah, yeah, that was kind of cool. Let's go get dinner now. So that was how, like, emergency medicine, and more specifically pre-hospital care, came into even thinking about it. Because until then... You know, an ambulance was just something that took someone to the hospital, and I, I never thought about it. So I made it through school while I was in college. I joined that rescue squad as an EMT. I actually got accepted to the county EMS service as a paid job on the same day I got accepted to med school. I was fortunate enough to, to be able to defer starting uh, med school for a year while I worked full-time. It was great. I'm going to get married and, and other good life events. 
But then I nearly flunked out of med school because I wasn't quite ready to, to quit my job yet. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I, uh, I finally made a decision to quit my job, go to school, but EMS never left me. It's forced enough to come to a residency with a heavy pre-hospital experience, um, did a, an unaccredited fellowship in EMS medicine afterwards. And then since I've been here, um, I was able to, to help create one of the first ACGME accredited fellowships in EMS medicine um, and just stick around a place long enough and certain titles come your way. So now I'm the fellowship director. I'm the director of the EMS division. And uh, other than that, just, just a standard guy. So, so I guess the question I, that, that I'm led to, were you a paramedic when you went to medical school or an EMT basic or where, where were you at on that process as far as your learning, your yeah. learning curve? So, yeah, so this is this is back when dinosaurs walked the earth. Um, so I was an EMT-D for defibrillator. So Interesting. when I went through EMT school, it was before AEDs were out. So a standard EMT and then did 24 hours of extra training to be able to use an AED and an EpiPen and a few other things. Um, had I not gotten into medical school, I probably would have gone on the paramedic route. Um, but I proudly wear an EMT patch on my... Uh, fire department uh gear because that's as far as i ever made it <laughs> that's far enough right i mean you go on to medical school and you we mentioned before we we're doing a little bit of precursory uh work on this you mentioned that uh, you nearly flunked out of medical school because you couldn't stay off the squads that's true <laughs> so what was this you, you have a final coming up but it the the the, the harpy sound of of compelling you to get on a, a a squad to go on a run was just too much or what was that what did that look like in your experience are we talking first year second year was, clerkships what yeah in in my first year i was young and dumb and you know the school was was always okay for me and um med school gave us a week off like a study week before got a big block exam. So we'd have all of our exams mm-hmm. over two days on a Thursday, Friday. So I get out of school, you know, out of class, midday on Friday the week before, and I have a whole week to prepare for an exam. I'd never studied for a week for any test before. So I would drive a couple hours to, um, to Charlotte, which is where I worked. I'd get there, catch up on my continuing education, work like a, like a 7P to 7A, shift and then wake up and do like a 4P to 4A shift and then wake up and do like an 11P to 11A shift then take a nap and drive home and start studying on, on like what a like a Tuesday and then couldn't figure out why I made a 60 something on my first anatomy test and a 50 something on my second anatomy test and figured I needed to change something because um, I couldn't continue what I was doing. We actually, I think you're ahead of the curve because one of the things that I'm concerned about is uh, the lack of of practical experience in today's students who don't have opportunities to moonlight or don't aren't allowed to because their programs and work hour limitations. You were just ahead of the curve. None of us started moonlighting until we got our license. You were already moonlighting. You knew of all about that and the value of that. I mean, and now our students don't get any of that, relatively speaking, and it's 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 troublesome because I'm going to ask you in just a second what is pre-hospital medicine, but I mean, you knew what pre-hospital medicine was even before you started thinking about it from the professional capacity as a physician, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of by, by happenstance and discovery. And I'll tell you that like any other kind of experience, whether it be from, from scribes or being an MA or being a trainer or anything, it once I got into my clerkships, it certainly helped me along the way because I had actually, you know, 
talk to a sick person, mm-hmm. um, which which many students, if they follow a, a purely traditional route, other than a relative, may not have actually you know talked to and cared for someone who was acutely ill or in pain. So it it paid off in the long run, but it was it was awful tough in the the first year. I'll be on, I'll be honest with you. I have the privilege of interviewing students occasionally. They're going to enter our classes, and the students I look forward to talking with are either paramedics or scribes. And it, the 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 value of those experiences coming into medical school are just almost priceless because exactly what you've said. You've talked to real patients. If you're a paramedic, you've made real medical decisions that could have profoundly negative or positive effects on patients. And I think the students that have those experiences come in a little bit more mature and a little bit more. Um, Oh, I want to say, I don't want to use the wrong word and insult the vast majority of students that don't have that experience, but just say they're clinically more mature, I think. I think they they realize a little bit more of what they're getting into and what medicine really looks like and not sort of the pie in the sky. I think I know what it means to be a doctor. They they really do see have some insights. And I wish, my feeling is I wish we could train every medical student to be a paramedic before they came to medical school. I think it would, first of all, bolster national defense. And second of all, it would really help them to make some decisions and What's it like to actually push a drug, knowing I'm making th- I'm I'm making the call here, and I, I I just think it's a great thing you had that background. So maybe what is pre-hospital medicine? Let's ask that question. What, what is it? I mean, we got these fellowships. I think there's what about 45 fellowships now around the country. Does that sound right? Something like that. I know there were a couple more that um, that are just approved. Um, so there there were 20 in the uh, in the initial round, and we are in our fifth year. Uh, going into those uh, initial twenty, so it is it is certainly growing, um, which is which is great. There were a handful of unaccredited fellowships that I think have uh, have closed now, but in the, the grand thing, pre-hospital medicine is like emergency medicine in that it is unscheduled care, often acute but not always, but it happens outside of the hospital environment. So, you know, not primary care, although we do some primary stuff. Um, and once you get into the emergency department, then it's truly hospital-based. But it's, in many ways, it's taking emergency medicine out into the field. A lot of it is uh, differs from community to community based off of their needs and the way their system is designed. There are some places where, uh, for years, they have had um, a robust physician field response where when certain sick 911 calls go out, the EMS physician jumps in their own truck and separately responds to layer on top of um, the standard fire and, and EMS uh, response. When I was in Charlotte, my medical director was notified for cardiac arrest, entrapment, Uh, available for complicated cases. Pittsburgh has been doing this uh, for many years, as does New Mexico. In other places, um, it can, from the physician involvement, is much more educational and administrative. One kind of very crude way to to look at it is all pre-hospital care delivered by EMTs and paramedics is done under some degree of oversight by a physician. Requirements vary by state by state, um, but in general, you have a, a panel that sets protocols, which are 
Some are mother may I, where you have to call for everything. Others are really broad and empowering. Um, but it's all done kind of under the guidance of, of the medical director or a medical control board. Also responsible to make sure that, you know, the providers are educated to safely uh, and appropriately deliver care via those protocols. Responsible for doing um, QA and uh, CQI to make sure that that care improves and to identify little hot spots become, before they become problematic. Um, and then there's a whole degree of research as well uh, that layers on top of all the care and the education and the QAQI uh, to find better and more effective therapies or to refute dogma of what we used to do. There's lots and lots of opportunities uh, for it, and um, we are uh, we were recently recognized you know, in the last five or seven years by the Global House of Medicine that it does take true subspecialty training to be able to take the knowledge of all of medicine and be able to appropriately translate it into uh, that out-of-hospital environment and oftentimes into the hands of non-physician practitioners. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking right now, uh, I have to split roles between West Virginia and Ohio. And of course, West Virginia has a very robust medical command that has a lot of very exhaustive protocols and a lot of very direct supervision of paramedics. And I was talking to some EMT guys, uh, they were transferring, we live, of course, Athens is close to the river, like Cincinnati is. And so you'll have a run in Southern Ohio that takes a patient from Ohio into West Virginia to a hospital. And the Ohio paramedics, who I guess have more latitude in many cases, talk about how difficult it is suddenly going to West Virginia, and now they fall under the guidelines of West Virginia Medical Command. And there's almost a resentment of now we're being told what to do. You kind of sense that. But it does change. I don't think a lot of Americans or even medical people, including regular family primary care doctors, understand how different each state is in terms of its EMS delivery and their systems they've developed to, to, to do that. And the other thing I thought about, Jason, maybe you talk about this before we go on to how the fellowships, what prompted them, is when I was in England and France, uh, they have these advanced providers that show up on motorcycles before anybody else shows up. If there's a call, somebody with a motorcycle and a defibrillator and a bunch of drugs shows up at your house. And then there's people coming, but they, they will show up like that. And I'm wondering if that's, I don't know if they're physicians or if they're advanced practice nurses or PAs, but I get the, I know I, I spoke to people and they were saying that, that that's not uncommon at all in Europe. I know that. Does that, does that resonate with you? It does. There is significant physician involvement in pre-hospital care in Western Europe, especially, um, that is not omnipresent in the United States. Okay, so then maybe that's a good segue into, and, and at some point I want you to comment about differences in pre-hospital between rural and urban settings, but what what was the motivation to prompt the development of, pre, of the pre-hospital fellowship programs in this country? Well, pre-hospital care and pre-hospital fellowships have existed for, for decades, and it was a, a pretty natural transition after, you know, emergency medicine was founded uh, and started to grow of being able to to push that knowledge and experience outward as much as possible. The you know the National Association of EMS Physician uh, Physicians has existed for decades. We've identified ourselves as being special uh, in all connotations, 
and had to fight for some of their recognition. You know, in the house of medicine to be a subspecialty, it has to be a clinical basis. Um, and some of the very early works, because there were so few of us and um, so much administrative and oversight work to do, there wasn't necessarily um, that much of a true clinical basis that would differentiate what a pre-hospital physician could and should do and require that training for over a well-trained EMT and paramedic. Back to, you know, from, from our forefathers, the first push for um, for subspecialty accreditation and boarding was turned down. And it was only with kind of uh, additional work and care that we were able to, to make our case. Hmm. What what was the uh, what was the blowback or what was the difficulty in in recognizing the importance and need for it? To be honest, I, I'm not 100 percent sure because I came in at exactly the perfect time in that the most of the struggle had already passed, um, and as I was finishing my fellowship, was. Uh, just as things were starting to, to be cemented for our final, for the subspecialties, um, ultimately successful um, uh, application. So well, I, I don't want to speculate too much because I, I don't know. I, uh, I have a, a thought on that, and I, it, it, it comes from my first tour of Iraq in 2004, uh, where I was an operational physician with a with a forward battalion, and of course we were steeped in and that was the beginnings of T well before T triple C I did PHTLS and then T triple C evolved over Afg- out of Afghanistan Iraq, but I remember being asked by a combat support hospital there had been a an adverse event where an individual had um, succumbed because they had a non definitive airway that wasn't recognized it was a, a combi tube. The receiving hospital did not recognize it as a combi tube. They left the airway in for several days, and the patient ended up having predictable complications from a non-definitive airway. And so the, ca- the combat support hospital asked me to come over from the battalion and give them a lecture. Uh, forgive me, this was 2008, but even in 2008, would you tell us about all these adjuncts that are being used in the pre-hospital setting? We'd really like to know because we don't use them in the hospital. And at that time, the King LT had just been introduced. Uh, there was glide scopes. There was other tools which... You know, you can anybody listening can look those up on Google. But these tools that have been developed to help facilitate more advanced care in the field, and it and it may it might have been not knowing what you don't know that the people that are looking at maybe doing accrediting thinking, well, it's kind of like where the tourniquets were. Uh, we knew about them in Vietnam, and then somehow the knowledge was lost institutionally, and it took you know, basically another 30 or 40 years for people to say, yeah, it's probably a pretty good idea to clamp down on an artery that's uncontrolled, you know? And it, it always surprised me that in World War II, we had people putting tourniquets on. In the Civil War, we had people t- putting tourniquets on. There was this period of, and even today, you know, that people are still, well, we know they're probably important. There's not this widespread adoption. It's, it's kind of maybe a cyclical thing where people lose sight of what really happens. I don't know what that, I don't know how that works. I don't know, maybe you, you've seen it too, where, Somebody gets a good idea, and the good idea is really a bad idea. Like, no, we tourniquets will hurt you. <laughs> well, if you're pumping blood out of an artery, that's going to hurt you too. I, I've I not understood that. I really haven't. But it, it seems to happen in medical science. We lose track of things that work really well, or we just, I don't know. It's a strange thing to me. Yeah. yeah. A, lot of, uh, a lot of what we do is, is create new knowledge and refute dogma. Yeah. Uh, that is profound. That's a very good statement. That's exactly right. 
Well, okay, so then... And one of the other concerns, mm. one of the other challenges that we face across pre-hospital medicine is that, you know, the not everything translates from inside the hospital to the outside. Not everything translates from the, the outpatient office uh, into the back of an ambulance. We, uh, I'll candidly tell you that I've gotten to give several talks on acute stroke care um, mm. nationally and, and even internationally. And I almost always spend the first 10 minutes of my talk simply describing what's in the back of an ambulance. People just when don't I know. To, yeah, because folks don't know, make assumptions. And once we're able to kind of outline the, the challenges that are faced, not from the, the whole breadth of knowledge that, that is expected of the public that, that calls for a preschool provider, but also the limitations of the, the limited initial training, access to ongoing training, um, that some things are, are not necessarily feasible based off of those, those constraints. Hmm. And it helps to it helps to set um, helps to set the tone and the capabilities, and at the same time identify opportunities for improvement and continued growth within the specialty, physician and non physician base. Um, but when assumptions are made that you know, of course we can teach an NIH stroke scale, you can, but at the sacrifice of others, you can teach um, super advanced twelve-lead EKG. Transesophageal echocardiogram. You can do EEG and brain monitoring. You know, our, our pre-hospital providers are capable of anything and everything, but being able to maintain that um, skill set with everything else becomes quite problematic. Yeah, there's a... Because essentially everything that, that I'm expected to do in the emergency department after four years of residency training and a year of uh, fellowship training my EMTs and paramedics are expected to do as well. Yeah, Jason, I, there's a there's an idea being floated in the military right now, which I'm not opposed or in favor of yet, uh, but Reboa uh, being taught to um, flight paramedics. And, you know, right. it is not a trivial procedure. It is life-saving when it's necessary, but it's a technically complex procedure. And, I, yeah, I mean, it, it really does pose, like, what can you do? Yeah, you could do anything, but what is worth trying versus what isn't? It's a... It's a I'm sure you're seeing it in civilian literature too. I just haven't followed the civilian literature, but certainly the military, Reboa is being looked at. We should be training paramedics to do this. I'm like, wow, that's impressive. I, but it it's it's saved a few lives. I it's impressive technology, especially in someone who's got profound hemorrhage, yeah, internal internal bleeding. So, sure. okay, so maybe this first segment we end well on what do fellowship trained pre-hospital physicians do? I mean, their job, what jobs they get, or what positions responsibilities they have after they get this fellowship training. So it is, uh, it is an evolving market. What's been nice is that as fellowships have become more entrenched um, and we're turning out more folks, opportunities are being created. Um, my, we're graduating our 16th and 17th accredited fellow next month over the last uh, four years, which has been quite humbling. And the jobs that they've taken have suited their individual interests well. Um, I have... One, uh, who is highly geared into research, who's a physician medical director for a very small suburban uh, department to kind of keep his feet wet, um, but is really pushing towards um, a career of, um, of funded research and, and independent uh, to become independently funded. I have another 
um, that is very involved in uh, in helicopter EMS and is um, taking over a flight program uh, in the Midwest uh, in the next couple of years, was recruited to do so. There's generally kind of um, three general tracks that folks take. One is an academic base in that every emergency medicine training program has to provide uh, EMS education. So they all tend to have, especially now, at least one EMS trained physician that leads that educational component for for their residency and then serves as a liaison for, for EMS agencies. There is, uh, and also kind of within that academic path would be uh, the research as well. Um, and then there's a um, kind of a primarily operational one where it is a lot of clinical medicine um, in a physician response vehicle, whether it be on four wheels or four blades like a helicopter, and is out um, seeing patients in the field um, as, as much as possible and in doing so providing kind of just-in-time education, real-time feedback and the like. And then there is um, a more administrative one where if the EMS system is not set up for that physician field response, does a lot of education uh, and QA, QI uh, type activities. But every place that I've ever been and uh, all the folks that I talk to, there's no two jobs that are exactly alike. Because how EMS grew up was very regional. Uh, so what that agency, their history influences their future um, and how a physician fits into that, that whole spectrum of care differs from township to township, state to state, um, and region to region. Hmm. It's interesting. You, so you, you create a concept and then people adapt to it based upon what their relative or their respective needs are. That's kind of cool actually that the, this trained individual, well, what do we do with them? Well, they'll figure out what to do with them. They've got a lot of things they could do with them. It's pretty cool actually. Well, um, good. Uh, you're willing to join me on another segment. We, we continue this conversation. Okay. Is that good? Okay. So, uh, at this point we're going to bid, uh, Dr. McMullen adieu for a little bit, and we're going to go come back on a second segment for pre-hospital medicine, everything you ever wanted to know about it, or at least as much as we can come up with on a Memorial day uh, weekend and beyond, uh, rotations is of course pre-recorded. So we're going to break this up. It won't all be on Memorial. It won't, none of it will be on Memorial day, but it'll be on some days and you'll know that we recorded it all on Memorial day. And I just want to thank everybody for, t- for taking the time to, to listen to rotations. And of course, you know, you can always comment, you can, uh, you can write me at rotations um uh media medicine uh, media medicine you can get me there on the website mediamedicine.com and certainly uh, uh tweet uh, to us at rotations um uh on twitter and that would be great and we'll we'll catch you on the next segment and i'm looking forward to talking again with dr mcmullen thank you Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media in the medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication. The guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. 
This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks and Brian Plow, hosted by Sarah Adkins and edited by Todd Fredericks and Brian Plow. Our producer at large is Nasarg Bakshi. Rotations is periodically co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the streets. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via the world of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing at us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationsppodcast, or by visiting mediainmedicine.com slash rotations. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine, science, and in part the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. I need to read this out loud first. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Start again.